My name is Casey Reyes. I get to be the Women's Ministries Director here at North Mountain. It's the best. Um, welcome to church. We are glad you're here. Sometimes that can be um, kind of a scary thing or a new thing for you. Maybe this is your first time. We're super glad you're here. If it is your first time, you can go out to the welcome desk and get a present. Who doesn't love presents? Um, we are one of 10 congregations in the state of Arizona. We have a campus in Flagstaff, a campus in Tucson, and then eight in sort of the Phoenix metropolitan area. So um, some things that you can expect to experience in our service this morning, worship, um, which Chandler, Chandler just let us in, just singing out to God, um, reminding each other of what is true. Um, we're going to hear God's word read, and then we're going to hear it taught, um, just unpacking who does God say he is, what does he say about us, and what does that mean when we walk out this door? Um, we will also have communion um, a little bit later, and then we'll have giving and prayer as well. So we are super glad you're here. One of the things that we say at Redemption often is all of life is all for Jesus, and that means that all the stuff happening out there in your life comes in here, and all the stuff that happens in here and the ways that God changes you should go out there as well. So um, we don't want to have a divided life. We want to have a whole life. And that means that Jesus gets every part of it. Um, I was talking to a friend this week and she said that I've been suffering a lot and I don't feel like I've been suffering with Jesus. And I want to walk in that suffering with Jesus. And that's kind of what that means. Um, something coming up soon for women's ministries is Galentine's. It's going to be really fun. Um, February 13th, 7 p.m. at church here. If you have questions, see me afterwards. Um, this is a Connect card. It has a QR code. You just point your phone at it, and the, if you open your photo app, then a link will come up, and it will have kind of the announcements for this week. Um, if you want to, if this is your first time here or you want to get connected, you can fill out this portion and turn it in at the desk or one of the offering boxes in the back. Um, I'm going to put a comment that Chandler should not play songs that make me cry before I have to come up and do announcements. That's what I'll be writing on my comment card. Um, as we get ready to read scripture, uh, our scripture reader is going to come up. Will you stand and honor God's word with us? What's up, everyone? Uh, packed house. Uh, today we're at Isaiah 41 through 17. There's blue Bibles under your chair if you need one. And in that Bible, that'll be page 347. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from me the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the, Lord, or for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, say the cities of Judah. Behold your God. Behold, the Lord comes 
with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom, and gently lead those who are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales, and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult, and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Luke. Well done. Great job. My name is Josh. I'm the pastor here, and I get to preach this passage for us this morning. Before we get there, we have some announcements, uh, kind of big church, so some of you will really care because some of you know these guys or know one of these guys. Some of you won't care. I'll just say it this way. Uh, this church, Redemption Church specifically, Redemption Church Arizona, not just North Mountain, but all 10 congregations and whatever else God burrs and does through these uh, churches uh, happens because of the guys you're about to see on this video. Specifically, a guy named Neil Pitchell has been our CFO uh, for years and years four decades worth of ministry behind the scenes faithfully out in Gilbert just chugging along doing what needed to be done so that church could happen. One of my favorite books of ministry I've ever read is called Trellis and the Vine. Uh, I'll give you the synopsis you don't have to read it but essentially vine is the people work of ministry. Small groups, marriage counseling, all that. The vine is what really, really matters, but a vine does not grow unless there's a trellis for it to grow on. The trellis is all the back end, all the stuff that has to happen for businesses to work, families to function, and churches to function. And these two men are the, the, the main people behind the trellis. So this, what you're about to see is Tyler Johnson, who's the lead pastor of All Redemption, announcing a transition from Neil Pitcher, who is retired, to Todd Hauge, who are, was our CFO, and now Todd is our new CFO. Both are dear friends. I love them a lot. Uh, but here's a video announcing uh, just what's been happening behind the scenes. The scriptures talk about how the work of the gospel happens through the transition of generations and that we're supposed to transition these things to faithful and reliable individuals. And I cannot tell you how encouraged I am, how God continues to provide in this way. The transition of a faithful and reliable person like Neil to Todd Howe just shows me the graciousness of God to myself, um, to all of us, and to Redemption Church Arizona. I cannot express how much this man means to me. Uh, Neil Pitchell to me has been one of my closest friends in so many ways. He's been a mentor, but his care, his concern, his experience and his expertise has served us so incredibly well. And we all wanna participate in thanking Neil Pitchell for his service. And at the same time, we wanna end by just thanking God for providing Todd Hauge. Um, it is proof positive that God will do exceedingly and abundantly beyond all we ask or think. And we know that's true because as we look back, God has done exceedingly and abundantly beyond all we ask or think. I've had the honor of serving as the pastor of Central Operations since planning began for the birth of Redemption Church in 2010. Since then, I have been a member of Redemption Arizona's executive and lead teams 
while serving as a pastor and elder at the Gilbert Congregation. Although there will always be challenges, I am convinced that God has a bright future for Redemption Church. Each congregation is led by devoted pastors and elders who love and shepherd their congregations. The executive team, which promotes collaboration, coordination, and alignment among the congregations, is doing an excellent job shaping the overall direction and culture of redemption. Thanks to God's faithfulness and your generosity, the church is in a healthy financial position to respond to future opportunities for personal and organizational growth of our church. I would like to thank you, the members and attendees of all of our congregations, for your commitment to our church through your serving, your giving, and your prayers. May we continue in all we do and say to give all glory to our great God and Savior. Thank you and God bless. My wife Kathy and I began attending Gateway seven years ago and we promptly began to hear about Neil. We both heard of the trust and confidence and how the matters of the church were handled and the pastoral wisdom he provided people in their personal lives. I firsthand began to witness a servant's heart humility, loyalty, careful stewardship, the trust he earned and the trust he had in our God, and a conviction for redemption in the multi-congregational church it desired to be. In this transition, Neil has taken care to strike the perfect notes in how he was closing this chapter and leaving matters in the hands of others, and puts another exclamation mark on what we already know about Neil. It is one more task he has completed with truth and love. Many of you watching don't know me, and this isn't meant to be about me, but a few words for context. There's no other place I would rather be right now than at this part of the body of Christ. I have a, a broad business background, leadership roles in a variety of organizations, weighted towards the financial focus. The seed for me to be in this role was planted by another pastor in another church in another state 10 years ago. I could not be more grateful to be here and take this handoff from Neil as redemption moves into the future. Thank you, Neil, for the race you've run well to this moment. Um, everything about how you have run the race will have a lasting impact on those who have seen it firsthand and even those who have not. You have pointed us all to Jesus. <laughs> oh, Neil, he's a treasure of a man. So, uh, some of you really care about that stuff. Uh, all of us should care because it matters a lot. But we are in good hands. Just, you know, and our leaders are like really gifted and really humble. Todd was just out here with me last week, just driving around, getting a sense of North Mountain area and praying for us. And he's like the head of C, you know, all these important things, C level executive for all his life. And he's out here with little Leo, me, driving around, just hearing about our church. And it's just, we got great leaders. And Neil is like the epitome of what is good about redemption. And I wanna just thank him whenever I see him. If you know him, send him a text. Jack's good, probably, you probably sent him a few texts, but um, send him an email. But I wanna pray and just thank God for Neil Pitchell. So let's pray together. God, thank you for men and women who are deserving of honor. Your word says, give honor where honor is due and no man deserves honor as much as Neil Pitchell for what he's been, what he's done, what he's endured as a pastor uh, of Redemption Church, and as a behind-the-scenes pastor, not getting the glory, not getting the fame, but doing the work, the hard work of ministry, both with people and with building, all that needs to be built so that our church could be what it is supposed to be. So God, we continue uh, to ask you for more 
I ask you for more Neil-type leaders, humble, gifted, uh, tender-hearted, who are going to lead this church into even better years. So, Lord, we thank you. Give Neil just a wonderful retirement. Let him enjoy his new grandbaby fully and really live it up. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, well, we get to dive into Isaiah 40. We've got a lot to cover. I'm not going to cover it all. So we are in this new series called The Servant King. Here's what it is. It's Isaiah chapter 40 through Isaiah chapter 55. In the Hebrew, it's one long poem. It's a single poem that God gives his, gave his people back then and by extension by his spirit has given us through his word. And we're going to spend the next few weeks and months leading up to Good Friday and Easter looking at the suffering servant. So I just want to get us sort of into the waters of Isaiah. Some of us have extensive church background. We're like, yeah, I get it. I got all these things memorized. A lot of us, more and more of us, who enter this room don't really know, could not even get to Isaiah if there was not a page number to get to. And I get that. That's me for many, many years. But let's just talk through Isaiah. Here's sort of Isaiah the person. He's a major prophet. I'd call him the major prophet. Here's why I call him that. Of the prophets in the Old Testament, he's the first one listed which this is not chronological. The Bible is not listed as a timeline. It's listed, we categorize it by themes and importance. And Isaiah is the first of the prophets. He's the most prominent prophet. He's the most quoted prophet in the New Testament. He's a big deal for Jewish folks still, and especially Christians to this day. He has a lot to say, a lot to say back then, and a lot that rings true even this moment. Just in the beginning, he says he's the son of Amos. He's just a normal guy. He's married with two sons. The reason I write that, I like that because we studied the kings for so long. Remember, David is like, he had this wife, and then he took this wife, and then he took a whole bunch of wives, and then the next guy did the same thing. Isaiah is a one-woman man. He's got two little knucklehead boys running around, and also he has this very important job to be the prophet to the people of God. Just to give you a context of what his job is, I won't make you flip much, but go back to Isaiah chapter 6, and I want to see Isaiah's job description, because it's hilarious and sad. This is when Isaiah first takes the job. It's like, let's talk about benefits, right? how much unlimited PTO, right? That's the new thing. Like, what's, what's, what's in this? Chapter 6, verse 8. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and whom will go for us? Then I said, this is Isaiah, here I am, send me. And he said, go and say this to the people. Here's your job description, bud. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their eyes, their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Isaiah said, follow-up question, how long is this job, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant, houses without people, the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord remo removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is filled. The holy seed is its stump. Yikes. That's an immediate no for any of us at the job interview. This is Isaiah's job, according to God. You are going to be my spokesperson. You're going to speak, and no one's going to hear what you're saying. They'll hear, but they will not do anything with it. You're going to paint beautiful visuals of God and what he's doing, and nobody's going to see it. Well, how long until all this is laid waste? Until this land is in rubble? That's your job. That's Isaiah 
the prophet. Here's the context. Just to give you sort of time frame, especially those of you keeping track of all these times, making sure we're lined up. So 740 to 700 BC, 400 years he prophesied, he preached, he led as a prophet. So just to give you context, this is about 200 years after Solomon, about 300 years after the kingdom started. So sort of like America, as old as America is, Israel is this old, and now Isaiah's on the scene speaking in this day and age to these people who've been around for 300-ish years, and he's got a lot to say. What's his main place of work? It's in Judah. So the north is called Israel. The south is called Judah. Ten tribes up here, two tribes down here. His main work is down here, which is where the line of Jesus is. So Jesus comes out of Judah. He's speaking to Judah. And specifically, who's he speaking to? He's got four kings that are on his radar. Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. So to give you context, it's like, hey, your job is to be a prophet to America. You got Obama, you got George W., you got Trump, and you got Biden. Those are your four guys. You're going to cover both spectrums. You're going to speak harsh truths to the right and to the left, but this is your calling. That's his calling. Four key leaders in Judah. It's your job to speak to them. And here's what makes his job very painful. He's speaking impending doom and judgment. So if he's preaching from 740 to 700 B.C.-ish, in 722, Assyria, a great empire, comes to the north and decimates them. They don't, like, take their people off into the land of Assyria. They just take over the land and start to, like, invade. It's like if we were invaded by Mexico or by Canada, and they just stuck around forever, and then America becomes a blend of Canadian heritage and American heritage with Canada getting to fly their flag above ours. That's what happened in the north. Assyria is in charge, and he's the one telling them. The people of God, the only people at this day and age in the moment of history to have a, a monotheistic faith, a one-God faith. Everyone else is paganistic, multiple gods, and God speaks to this one people through Abraham, through David, through all these people. You are the chosen seed, and your northern empire is going to be taken away, demolished by Assyria. And he's like, I'm not done yet. And also... Just so you know, the south is going to get it too. A hundred years after my death, Isaiah prophesies that Babylon is going to come in. And they're not just going to kind of interbreed and lay in the land. They're going to take the best of Israel and take it out of the land. Steal it. Kidnap boys, girls, boys to become eunuchs in the king's court, girls to become sex slaves. They steal the people from the land and take them away. Isaiah says, this is going to happen. So you're like, I came for an encouraging message this morning. You'll get one. Trust me. But the Bible is true to reality. And this is how history works. It's a dark, violent, vicious reality. And this is what Isaiah is in the middle of, prophesying all this. Now, how does the book actually line up? There's a lot of ways you could sort of outline it. I'm going to give it to you simply. It breaks down into two big movements. Chapters 1 through 39 is the first movement. Chapters 40 through 66 is the second movement. And the main theme is judgment, first half of the book, and hope, second half of the book. That's what the book's about. Chapters 1 through 39 is judgment. Chapters 40 through 66 are hope, and they are far different. So 39 is the split. After 39, it totally changes its tone. So just to get, we're not, again, we're not covering the first half. Here's your sermon on the first half, Isaiah. Just so we know that I'm not making this up, go to chapter 1, verse 2 and 3, and let's see the context of Isaiah's day. Why is this judgment coming to these people? 
Isaiah chapter 1, verse 2 and 3. Here's how the people are described by prophet Isaiah. Hear, O heavens, give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know and my people do not understand. Why is Isaiah called on by God? Because this, a donkey knows who's in charge, but my people are too dumb to know that I'm the Lord and they are not listening to me. So you're going to be raised up to speak to them. Well, how bad has it gotten, Isaiah? Just to give you a glimpse, look over at verse 13. Here's what God says to the people of Israel in this day with their church services. Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure this iniquity in your solemn assembly. Translation, I hate your church. Be like God saying, North Mountain, knock it off. Get Chandler off the stage. You get off the stage. Throw that coffee away. Get out of here. This is ridiculous, is essentially saying. Knock it off with this Sunday worship. Okay, maybe, maybe I, we can figure it out Monday. And then he goes on. And also, none of you have figured anything out. Go to verse 16. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove all the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. You have not figured out anything. Your Sunday is trash, and your Monday through Saturday is trash. The widows are suffering. The oppressed are suffering. You are not doing what you're supposed to do, people of God. Therefore, judgment is coming. This is the first half of Isaiah. Luckily, we're not hanging out in there. We're going to be in the better half. However... How does this end? Go to Isaiah chapter 39. This is Isaiah's final statement to Israel before he turns the page and starts a new chapter. <laughs> Isaiah chapter 39, verse 6 and 7. Well, how bad did it get? Apparently they never listened. Verse 6, behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons whom will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the place of the king of Babylon. How bad did it get? It got so bad that God had to raise up another empire. Empires are raised up by God and God alone. And empires do what God wants them to do. And he raised up Babylon, which we all studied in fifth grade history and forgot for this reason, to come and punish his people, Israel. In chapter 39 ends with this. There's a day coming. So if he's preaching in 700, 598, this Babylonian captivity happens. He's like, just so you know, he doesn't give a time. But 100 years from now, it's going to get worse. Your sweet sons will be carried off into captivity. And they will be eunuchs in a foreign land where pagan gods are worshipped. And you have you and you alone to blame, Israel. Thus saith the Lord. Isaiah, I don't want your job, but this was Isaiah's job. Now here's the tension of this moment. Isaiah doesn't end in 39. But it's like, here's the judgment. What if, like, what's going to happen next? Here's kind of what... I try to think about it. September 11th happens. I'm in college. It's like, whoa. 
Imagine like I go in a coma. I wake up 30 years later. Like, what's my first question if I remember? It's like, what happened? Like, did we win? Did we figure out who, like, that's sort of what all this judgment is being preached by Isaiah. You're in judgment. Judgment's coming. It's going to be bad. It's like, well, what's going to happen? I thought of this, like I have a early 20s. I got a call. My stepsister died by suicide. And I just, it's like the most rattling moment of my life. And I'm just walking the streets of Phoenix like, a what in the world? It's like if that moment is frozen, fast forward, and I wake up 50 years down the road, what's it going to be like? Is this moment here to stay forever? Is destruction, is judgment, is the darkness of this world going to win? Like for you, it's not September 11th, but here's what we all sit in, this tension of like, is there hope? Israel is facing the real reality. Like, is there hope? He preaches, hey, it's bad. It's going to get worse. Chapter 40, then here's how chapter 40 works. It's, this is what commentators would say happened. Chapter 39 ends. It's all in person in the moment. Chapter 40, it's like Isaiah is transported magically by the Spirit to the future. 170 years into the future. Sort of like a prophet in the book of Revelation. Like, here's what's going to happen. And he's looking now at the reality of what's going on, and now chapter 40 is him beginning. What's the future like? How bad was the judgment? How permanent the damage? What's it going to be like? That is where we sit in this moment as we enter into this book, just to bring you up to speed in the story of Israel. And their question they're asking is, is there hope? And I'll just give you the answer on the front end, yes. Here's my big idea, though. Any real hope that Israel or we can ever find, must start with God. Chapter 40, verse 1, is not a how to fix your stuff, Israel. Chapter 40 is a sermon about God and the glory and beauty of God. How do we get hope? We start with God. And here's how I want to do this, because I'm supposed to teach all of Isaiah chapter 40. So that's a lot of verses. I'm not going to teach all of it. I'll teach most of it. But I want to sort of give you a way to categorize your worship of God. Like when you say like, okay, I'm, if I'm going to have real hope, I need to start with God. Like what about God? And here's something that I found 15 years ago that has stuck with me ever since. It was from a book called You Can Change. But this man calls this four G's of God. Here's the four great truths of God. God is gracious. God is good. God is great. And God is glorious. And as we unpack Isaiah 40, Isaiah talks about God being gracious and good and great and glorious. And as I think about hope for you and for me, this week was a doozy. I got a lot of calls about a lot of serious stuff happened. We've got dear friends going through. It's like me and my wife sat on the couch multiple times, just like overwhelmed, spent. Okay, where do we go to find hope? I'm a fixer. I'm a doer. Do I fix and do right now? My wife's a warrior. Does she just worry her way into her hope? Like, do we combine and find a middle ground? Isaiah would say, no, 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 no. You need to fill up your buckets. God is great. God is gracious. God is good. God is glorious. Fill those up. That's the only spot you will have hope that actually endures. So that's what we're doing today, walking through this beautiful God that Isaiah tells about. And we'll start in verse 1. Let's just see. I love this verse here. So again, judgment has come. 
He ends chapter 39 with there's going to be more judgment. Isaiah gets transported to the future. He's looking at the horizon of what God has done with the people of Israel. And here's the first words out of Isaiah's mouth. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Just pause right there. Christianity is unique in that regard. No matter how much junk chapters 1 through 39 have in your life, in Israel's life, in our life, there's always a chapter 40 where God opens up and says, here's what I'm here for. Comfort. Comfort. Not like Western civilization comfort, I've got enough. But comfort like God is for you. Judgment does not get the final word. God is for you. He's with you. And he wants to comfort Comfort you. The way the Jews emphasize stuff, they don't have adjectives. They just repeat words. So Isaiah, just so you know, he's starting this new time with Israel, this new chapter. What's it going to be like? What's the heading on this chapter? It's comfort. Comfort. That's good news. Like, I don't know what you need to hear. If you just leave with this, comfort, comfort. You leave here and you go face whatever it is that's causing hopelessness in you. And you just say, comfort, comfort. And it's true, because that's how God is always. This is not a one-off. This is the essence of God's character. And now Isaiah goes into just a great sermon on the glories of God. Here's the first bucket I want to fill, though. God is gracious. Let's read this together. Chapter 40, verse 2. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended and her iniquity is pardoned that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Stop right there. Remember, he's fast forwarding to the future, and he's speaking truth about what the future is going to be like. Assyria came, Babylon came, judgment is there. Well, what's that? Is that the final word? He says, no, 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 here. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Their war, her warfare is ended, and her iniquity is imparted. Translation, Israel, you are forgiven. I'm done with the judgment. There's coming a day where your judgment will be over. And he says, it has happened. Your judgment is over. Your iniquity is pardoned. What's that called? It's called grace. Grace. What's the winning theme of the story of God as he writes it for Israel, writes it for us, is grace. Israel, there is grace coming for you, no matter how stupid and sinful and bad your decisions have been for hundreds of years under the reign of my gracious hand as your heavenly father, there's a day coming where your iniquity is pardoned. That's called good news. And then he goes in Isaiah in his prophetic way speaks into the future for us in the person of Jesus. Verse three, there's more grace coming. Verse three says, and a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. That's the calling on John the Baptist's life. What a great, like, to be John the Baptist, who Jesus says is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven outside of me. Part of it is he just meditated on Isaiah and all this judgment, 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 judgment. You deserve judgment, judgment, judgment. What's going to change that? There's a voice crying out who's got a message, and I get to be that voice. What an honor to be the weird guy in the desert eating locusts and honey preaching a message about the coming grace of Jesus the King. Verse 4 says this. What's this grace going to do? It's going to change everything. Every valley will be lifted up. Every mountain and hill will be made low. The uneven ground will become level. The rough places, a plain, 
and ultimately the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. What is this grace going to do? It's going to be forgiving, yes, but the grace of God is also restoring. It's going to fix everything that it comes into contact with. God is not just a judge in a back room pardoning our sin with the gavel saying, Josh, you are forgiven. Go and be on your way. He is a pursuing God. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. He's always involved with every part of our life. What's he doing? He's graciously smashing the mountains, making the rough parts smooth. He is fixing everything. Why? By his grace. And here's what's unique about Christianity that no one else can offer. Say you're really dealing with some stuff. Like you're one of the people that I'm talking about. And you talk to someone who does not know the Lord, and you're seeking help, hope. Like, they can give you some good stuff. Here's what they cannot give you, is grace. They just, Christians alone possess grace because it's been given to us by Jesus Christ. And here's my biggest fear in life, is that I'm going to screw this up royally. And grace says, no Christian is ever going to screw it up royally. I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to fix it all. God is gracious towards us. I used to work with a principal that I loved. Great guy. But like stuff would happen, heavy stuff. And you know, he'd send out the newsletter and his thing was, send good vibes. Hey, Josh, Josh's wife had another miscarriage. Send good vibes. Hey, heart attack in the family. Send good vibes. And that's all he had. And I don't, but I don't want a good vibe. I don't know what a good vibe is. <laughs> I want this, that my sin is never going to keep me from God working on my behalf. And that's what grace is. God's grace is over us if we're in Christ Jesus. Amen? A most simple definition of grace is this. Grace is the free, undeserved goodness and favor of God to mankind. And Israel got it, and we got it even more and better and more fully in the person of Jesus Christ. It's the free, unmerited Goodness of God on our life. Like, here's what, the way I think. All of us should have been canceled at chapter 39. And that should be end of the story. Well, it's, it was a good ride. Sam, great ride. You did your best. Josh, X, you really, you really did good. But chapter, nope. Chapter 40 says, comfort, comfort. I got grace. And I'm not done. I will fix it all because I'm a gracious God. That book that I read back in the day the, where I got these four Gs, he has a tagline with each of these truths just to, leave with you. God is gracious. Here's the reality. This is unique to Christians. We don't have to prove ourselves to anyone because the one that matters most, God of the universe, has done the work for us so we don't have to prove ourselves anymore. He is gracious. That's the first G. God is gracious. Here's the second one. God is good. Let's read verse six through eight together. Chandler read this to kick us off. And a voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? Here's the word. All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flower fades. Write this down and memorize this. But the word of our God will stand forever. Like what's the greatest promise you've made to someone that you've kept? For me, it's my wedding vows, and I'm 16 years in, and I'm still holding on. Like, that's the best I have, and that's a great one. But God has made promises over thousands of years, and not a single promise has fallen empty 
fallen void. Every promise he has spoken has come true or is going to come true. That is unique. No one can claim that except for God when he says about himself, all of you and you, Josh, are like grass, but the word of God will stand forever. William Carey, a famous missionary, says this, our future is as bright as the promises of God. Why? Because he's so good. Well, describe his goodness. How does Isaiah describe his goodness? Verse 9 through verse 11. Let's talk now about this God. Go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold, your God. We're going to sing a new song after this. Behold your God. It just means look, 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 look at your God. Behold, the Lord God, what's he like? Verse 10, he comes with might. His arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. What is God like? He is strong, verse 10. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. So the two biggest religions of the world, Christianity and Islam. Islam agrees with verse 10. Behold, God is mighty and he's got a strong arm. Islam starts to tucker out as soon as you keep reading verse 10. And his reward is with him and his recompense before him, meaning there's like good motives behind his strength. And then Muslims totally dip out at verse 11. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather us. And he will pick us up in his bosom. Muslims have a very strong view of God. Christians have this. We have a strong, beautiful God who is tender and good. And he's like a shepherd who wants to pick us up and carry us in his bosom. That is the most intimate image you can have. And here's the reality about Christianity. All of us struggle with this. Is God truly good? Like I can say good theologically, but for me specifically, because here's how it plays out. For the single people dating, you got decisions to make. It's like, am I going to trust that God is really good? He's good. He's good. He's good. Or are you going to take a veer and say, I'm going to accumulate the goodness, get the goodness, grab hold of the goodness on my own. That's how humanity has played itself out since Genesis. Adam and Eve, good, 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 good. A billion things that are good. God says, enjoy it all. Just don't do that. And Satan says, it seems like God's holding out on you. Like, I don't think he's as good as he told you guys. And this serpent says, I think this is good, this way. And they bought it like a fish on bait. And we all take the same bait all the time. Why? And here's at the core. We do not believe that God is really that good period. Like, that's my big thing is I really wrestle through faith and have bigger questions in my life. It's like, I just don't think God is that good. I get that he has saved me. He's forgiven me. But day to day, moment by moment, second by second, I don't trust his goodness for my life because pain comes in or confusion or family strife, whatever. And I'm like, I got to take this into my own hands. One author says this, our, one of our problems that we think of only in moments, in the moment we think the pleasures of sin are real. Whatever it is you're choosing that seems good, 
And the joy of God is insubstantial or distant. But in truth, it's the other way around. Every joy we experience is simply a shadow of the source of all joy and goodness, which is God. That is the path of discipleship. Learning to trust that God is actually good and acting in that direction as opposed to what Adam and Eve and all of us do all the time. God is truly good. Here's what the author would say to do with this truth. God is good, so we do not need to look elsewhere. He's our strong, tender, good shepherd. Some of you, that's the only thing you really need to think about as you leave here. It's like, he's good, he's good, he's good. And you'll forget by Tuesday, and you'll be back here, and we'll remind ourselves, he's good, he's good, he's good. God is good. Here's the third one. God is also great. He does not just camp out on the tenderness and the goodness of God. Now, Isaiah sort of pulls back the curtains and just goes all out on the bigness and the grandness of God. Verse 12, God is great. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a bounce? Answer, no one. He's like, look at the expanse of the universe. Isaiah has a very limited scientific understanding at this point. All he can say is, who could carry all this in their hand? No one, except for God. Science says this about our universe, just to give you a little perspective. Traveling at the speed of light. You know, I'm a kind of a science guy. That's fast, so if you didn't know. <laughs> you could encircle the earth seven times in one second. At that speed, it would take you 4.3 years to reach the nearest star. 4.3 years going that fast. It would take you uh, near a star and 100 years going that speed to cross our entire galaxy. It's still big. There are thought to be at least 100 billion galaxies in the universe. So going that fast, it takes you that long to get to the next one, and then you got 999,999,999 still to go to do that same thing over and over again. Isaiah doesn't have all that. He simply says, who could hold all this? It's like dust in his hands. And I know for in my house, a lot of our hopelessness comes from a forgetting the strength and the greatness of God. He's got this. Like he's holding all this up as dust in his hand. He's fine. It's you that needs to change your perspective. He's fine. It's all under control. And then he goes on to more. The wisdom. What about wisdom? Verse 13 and 14. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice? Taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Translation, no one. Like I was curious, how many people Google from day to day? Here's re- Google processes 99,000 searches every single second. Why? Because we all forget how many quarts are in a gallon all the time. It's like... I, is it four? Is it eight? Elijah, come in here. Wait, how many courts draw that thing again with the G and the... We're just not that smart. God's never, ever been like, I don't know. And I know that sounds trite, but it's like we have to remember. Next time you Google, do this. God, you've never Googled anything. I worship you. But I really have forgotten how many courts are in the gallon, so I need to... <laughs> He's, no, he's never taught, think about counseling and therapy and life coaches. Like I'm seeing a counselor talking through pastor stuff. He's never been like, you know what, I need a second opinion in here. He's, he's got it all. 
He's not anxious. He's not worried. He is settled. He is in control. He is knowledgeable. He knows it all. And then verse 15, he goes on to talk about just the people. The people across the globe, the best of the best. Here's how he describes them. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are counted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Talking about the whole world and its people. Lebanon, which is a great for place for force, would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are counted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. God is not impressed with a single nation, leader, powerful person, man or woman in this world. He's never like, whoa. He's never worried about what leader's doing what. Apparently there was a balloon floating across the sky. I told my wife, she's like, I don't know what you're talking about. I talked to other family members like, this is a big deal. <laughs> like, we got it. I'm like, I don't know who to believe. My wife who doesn't know anything or this person who says like, this is World War III starting now. I don't know. Verse 17, all the nations are nothing before him. They're accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. That's not a value statement on what he thinks about us. He loves us and cares for us. It's a statement on where he goes to be impressed and he does not look down to America or to Russia or to Iran or to Mexico to be like, oh, that's impressive. He says all nations are as nothing before him. God is great. Remember that as you're feeling whatever version of hopelessness, God is great. Here's the takeaway for God is great. God is great. So we don't need to be in control. He who is said of verse 17 is in control. And then go to bed at night, peaceful. Finally, here's the last one. God is glorious. Verse 18, this will be the last verse I preach. And to whom then, Isaiah says, will you liken God or what likeness compare with him? Stop right there. And then he's just going to go on a rant about who is like him. And he talks about the glory of God. What is glory? It's a very churchy word. It gets thrown out. It's simply, it's light or weight. It's the, the light and radiance somebody has or the weight that somebody carries as they enter a room. Like if someone walks in here and it's like everyone's quiet, there's a glory to that person for whatever reason. And God is the most glorious being in all the universe. And here's part of our big problem is we don't allow him to be as weighty as he should be. John Piper says this about faith in modern church. In the church, I'm just going to read it. Our view of God is so small instead of huge, so marginal instead of crucial, so vague instead of clear, so impotent instead of all-determining, and so uninspiring instead of ravishing that the responsibility to live for the glory of a God is a thought without content. This last... This gets me. The words can come out of your mouth, but ask the average Christian to tell you what they know about the glory of this God that they're going to live for, and their answer will not be very long. You know what saying? Tell me about the glory of God. And if you could wrap it up in 30 seconds, John Piper's right, and I'm indicted by that. One pastor said this, a lot of us are worshiping a weightless God. A weightless God. He is glorious. He is mighty. Verse 21. Let's read verse 21 through 25 and pray us out of here. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? 
preach about God, Isaiah. He says this, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. That would be us in this room. Who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and who spreads them like a tent to dwell in? Who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness? Scarcely they are planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carry them off like stubble. That's the opposite of weightiness, blowing away. Verse 25, to whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One of Israel. God is glorious. I don't know what sort of hope you need right now, but here's what I tell you. True hope starts with God. Isaiah is talking to a decimated people. And what he does is he opens up with comfort, comfort. Let me preach about my God. He is gracious so we don't have to prove ourselves. He is good, so none of us have to look elsewhere. He is great, so none of us have to be in control, no matter how scared you are about your kid, your parents' health. We don't have to be in control. He's got it. And he is glorious, so none of us have to fear anything because he's on our side. Amen? It's going to be a good series. I'm looking forward to it. Let's pray together. God, thank you for this book. Thank you for Isaiah and the ministry he had that in the moment was brutal. And yet as we, thousands of years later, get to unpack this gift that he gave his people then and us now, inspired by your spirit. And thank you for just the reality of Christianity, that in a world of hopelessness and despair and judgment, we as Christians get to turn to the next chapter and hear comfort, comfort and we get to be told again about a God who is so beautiful and so gracious and so much better than any of us deserve so God as we walk through this poem in Isaiah over the next few weeks and months I pray that your spirit would intersect our lives in real ways and we would be more hopeful because of our time spent in here Lord we love you in Christ's name we pray Amen